You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning and welcome to the Field Church this morning. Thank you for coming to worship with us. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Chad Wiles. I get to serve uh, as one of the pastors and elders here at the Field Church and as well as Director of Counseling Education at the Nehemiah Project, which is our biblical counseling ministry that serves this church. And when I got the ask to come and share and, and preach on a particular topic that we see in counseling, it seemed fitting to speak about the subject of trauma. Now you're like, well, that doesn't seem like a fun topic. Well, it seemed fitting because at the time that I was asked, it was one of the things that we were convicted most at the Nehemiah Project to be helpful with in helping our community because of how often we were seeing cases who were struggling with trauma and we trust in the sufficiency of Scripture, amen? And so we needed to come together and help give an answer to that. And my hope is to give us that framework today on how to respond to the issue of trauma. But before we can dive into the specifics on the subject of trauma, <clears throat> we have to back up and look at the larger subject of suffering. And so before we dive into trauma, Today, we're going to dive into and help, us, help give us the framework for suffering. I want to give a quick shout out to my team, Laura Retzloff and Ben Groff, who have done a lot of work helping us um, work hard on helping define these definitions and, and come together on a definition of trauma. And so I'm grateful for the grace and mercy that I don't have to do it alone. So. Before we <clears throat> jump into trauma, let's get a working definition of suffering. The definition of suffering that I give you today is suffering is the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual pain we experience because of the presence of sin due to the fall. I'll say it again. Suffering is the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual pain we experience because of the presence of sin due to the fall. We see this in Genesis chapter 3. Specifically, I'm going to pull out verses 5 and 7. Because the promise that Satan makes to, to Eve in verse 5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, speaking of the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be open, opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, <clears throat> she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the results of that choice to disobey God was that sin entered into the world. And in this part of the passage, we see that sin and shame entered in, that they knew they were naked. And the, the blissfulness of a sinless existence with God was wiped away. And now sin and shame entered into the world. 
Paul says it in Romans 5, 12, says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so spread death, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's, here's the thing that we need to understand. Suffering is an expectation in this life. It is expected that you will face suffering due to sin. And there are many churches and many pastors and many false theologies out there that would say otherwise and lead many people astray. Theologies like a word of faith or a prosperity gospel that would say, or seeker-sensitive churches that would say, if you just love Jesus and you'll receive blessing, you'll receive a good life, and that suffering is due to not having enough faith. And that is not true. That is false. And that's dangerous. And it's egregious to the character of God. And the reality is, suffering is an expectation for us in this life. Romans 8, 17 through 19 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. <clears throat> for the creation waits e with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That the suffering that we will face in this life, although hard and to a level that's tough to understand sometimes, it does not compare with the glory that will be revealed to us in Christ and with, with God the Father. So it is important for us to understand that suffering comes to us in various forms. There's a book <clears throat> called a, the a Theology of Biblical Counseling written by Heath Lambert. And within this, he has a chapter on <clears throat> the theology of suffering. Sorry, I'm dealing with allergies, so if I cough a little bit, please excuse me. The first category, he gives six different categories of suffering. The first category that he gives is suffering and human sinfulness. Suffering and human sinfulness. And within this category, we have two subcategories. The first being suffering due to our own sinful choices. We have to understand that all sin has consequences. That when we live and choose sin for ourselves, it will always have a consequences leading to suffering. Suffering that you'll have to face on your own, as well as suffering that others will face because of your choices at times. <coughs> all sin has consequences. That is always true. The second subcategory of this category of suffering and human sinfulness is suffering at the hands of another. Suffering at the hands of, the, of another. This is when we experience evil at the hand of another. When someone violates you. When someone does something to you outside of your control. When someone's sinful choice directly impacts your life. And it's within this category that we often see trauma reveal itself. It's not the only category. Trauma can be found in all these categories. But this one, when someone is violated, and I'm using that word because we have little ears in the room, but every definition of that word violation, think of it, that's what I mean. And many people face that every day. The second category is suffering in the world. Suffering and the world. There is suffering due to sinful worldly thought and sinful world systems. When the Bible speaks of the world, it's not <clears throat> primarily speaking of the globe or the physical earth. It's speaking of the worldly thought that is influenced by Satan himself. We see this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where he calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Or we see in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, where he warns, do not love the world. Or James 4, 
where we don't, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, that, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity means direct opposition. <clears throat> but also within that category of the world is also natural disasters. We live in a fallen, sinful world of things just are broken. Things happen. Car wrecks, tornadoes. If you live in this area, hurricanes. We have a whole season for natural disasters. All this is within that category of suffering in the world. And many of us face, will face that suffering at some level. It doesn't take very much to look around at our government or other governments and wars and, and worldly thoughts that cause struggle and destruction. The third category of suffering is suffering in the devil. Suffering in the devil. Satan is a dangerous adversary, and he's a very real one. And he seeks to destroy and devour God's creation. 1 Peter 5.18, where Peter compares him to a roaring lion, prowling around, looking for someone to devour. He's not an imaginary character. He's not a figure that we see this little, little horn devil-looking thing that we think about. It's one of Satan's greatest tricks is to caricaturize himself in that way. But Paul says he even comes as an angel of light. He comes with temptation, with deception, with lying, with deceit. And do not be deceived that he does not continue to try to destroy and tempt your life. Satan would love more than anything to take all of God's creation to hell with him. And so that's a real thing. In, in Ephesians 6, Paul warns us to put on the full armor of God so that we can withstand the, the flaming darts of the evil one. This is active in our life. The fourth category of suffering is suffering and the pain of others. Suffering and the pain of others. Seeing the sinful destruction in others' lives causes suffering in our lives. It doesn't take much to think through if you have a, maybe an adult child who's struggling with addiction or you have a family member who's facing cancer or you lose a family member at an early age or suffer a miscarriage or I can just keep going down the list. And when you are close, when you have family members, friends, loved ones who are going through these types of trials, it causes a grief within us. And that is a result of sin. It is suffering that we deal with. And we need to acknowledge that. The fifth category of suffering that Heath Lambert gives us is suffering and confusion. Suffering and confusion. This is one not often thought about. But we are finite creatures who have limited knowledge. And our sin disconnects us from the wisdom of God. Right? When we deny God, we're disconnected from where wisdom actually comes from. And we're very limited in our knowledge, so we are riddled with things of doubt and worry and fear and anxiety and depression and things like this. And it's due to our confusion, our limited knowledge, not understanding where our worth comes from, why we were created, who were we created for. We're confused to think that this life is about us and not about God. And James reminds us in 1 James 5 that if we lack wisdom, anyone who lacks wisdom, you let him ask of God who gives generously without reproach and it'll be given to him. Or Proverbs 1.7 reminds us that it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of knowledge. In order to have wisdom, we have to trust in God's wisdom because our knowledge is limited. Matthew 6, Jesus reminds those who are anxious, just seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All else will be added to you. 
but we suffer due to our lack of knowledge. And last but not least, category six is suffering and death. Suffering and death. The physical weakness of our bodies ultimately leads to death. We understand that. But this speaks to a broader category of death in terms of the frailty of our bodies. Many of us struggle with illnesses and diseases and um, troubles that come with that, as well as a spiritual death, being disconnected from God. And if anyone is not in Christ, you understand the results of that type of death that sin brings. And so it's important for us to see that there's so much suffering that it is expected for us as Christians to have to deal with suffering at some level, and we'll probably deal with suffering in each one of these categories at some degree. And it's within these categories of suffering that we may experience trauma. Now, it's important to understand that all trauma is due to the suffering of sin, but not all suffering results in trauma. So trauma is within the category of suffering, but not all suffering results in trauma. So how do we differentiate that? Um, I uh, don't have the time that it takes to really dig into all the things, but um, thankfully Laura helped summarize this for us, and so I want to give you this to help us understand just how we can differentiate trauma from, from the general suffering of sin. And the first category or factor that will help us differentiate is is if the memory of the experience of trauma, of the experience of something that you've went through, is so painful or upsetting that you're emotionally broken or distraught. The word that is found in Scripture that gives us this word trauma is only found once in Scripture, and it's found in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, particularly in, in verse 4, when it speaks about his wound. And the word there in Greek is, is trauma, which English is trauma, and I don't even think I did that justice. But <clears throat> the word means wound. And it appears in that one particular spot in Scripture of the Good Samaritan. But the root word for trauma is thrao, which is shown in another place in Scripture only once in all of Scripture, and it's found in Luke four eighteen when Jesus stands and reads a portion from the Old Testament about himself, prophesying about himself, and the word that's translated is oppressed. But that word thrao, the definition of it is to break, break in pieces, shatter completely, to smite through. And that definition, I think, gives us the right definition of what the experience of trauma feels like. When you remember the event, when whatever it is that you think may be trauma, if that is your experience, you feel shattered to pieces, you feel ran through, that's an accurate depiction of the experience of trauma. It helps differentiate between maybe um, suffering that we all face. The second category that helps us differentiate is if you have ongoing symptoms that relate to the experience, things like flashbacks, nightmares, perpetual levels of high anxiety, high cortisol, stress, adrenaline, uh, panic attacks, and other physiological responses. See, trauma roots itself physiologically within our bodies, uh, into our memories. 
And once again, I don't have the time to break all that down. We hope to develop a ton of free resources this summer that will help lay that out for us. Or the next time we do a trauma seminar, I encourage you to come. But one thing to understand is that it does root itself within us physiologically, physically. And it's expressed in these types of ways. So if you find yourself having panic attacks for no reason, if you go to certain places and something triggers and you're not even sure why, but it triggers this response, or if you're in certain situations and scenarios, it could be that you are struggling with trauma due to suffering. And last but not least, and maybe uh, most important to understand, is that the traumatic event has deeply impacted your understanding about your your own identity and beliefs about God. That you begin to shape your understanding of your worth and your identity through your experience instead of shaping your identity through the Word of God. And you find it very difficult to connect the two. You may even theoretically understand that God is trustworthy or good, but you have a really hard time truly believing that and trusting in that, and you find yourself trusting in many other things to find your hope. And if these three categories speak to you, you may be suffering with long-lasting effects of trauma. And one thing I want to say to you before I move on is you must deal with it. You have to. You can't sit in it. Because you can't shape your identity around that. Our identity should be shaped around God. And so you need, if you need help doing that, we would love to help you uh, at the Nehemiah Project or any of our pastors here would love to speak to you as well. So what is the biblical definition of trauma? Here's our working biblical definition. Trauma is a personal experience with evil and brokenness so contrary to God's glorious design that the person is left wounded. The wounds of trauma are healed by God's regeneration of the heart through Jesus Christ. It's important for us to understand that trauma is a personal experience with evil with that idea of that brokenness that's so contrary to God's glorious design. It confuses us. It messes with our minds. It messes with how we believe about ourselves and about the world around us. But that it can be healed and God regenerates through Jesus Christ. So in the rest of our time together, I want us to dive into the subject of trauma, and we're going to do it through the eyes of one of the more famous characters of the Bible, Joseph. And we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 50. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. If not, there's some Bibles in the back of the seats. If you don't have a Bible for yourself, you're welcome to take that one with you. Put your name in it. It's now yours. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 50. And Joseph, he understands the right answer in the face of trauma. So we're going to give away the ending by Joseph's response, and then we'll work backwards, okay? So in Genesis 50, starting in verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that, that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we have done to him, that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's brothers did a lot of evil. We're going to look at it here in, this, in just a second. But you see their urgency. That man, Joseph's in a high place of power. Our dad's dead. He's probably the only reason why Joseph hasn't killed us yet. We better run and make a plea <laughs> really quickly. But Joseph's response is the response that we should have for trauma. And we're going to talk through how we get there. But he says it. Am I not in the place of God? He understood God's sovereignty. Right? What you meant for evil, he acknowledges that it was evil. He doesn't shy away from it. But he says, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That God had a plan for this. And that his plan for salvation was bigger than my life. So how does Joseph get there? Well, let's, let's look at the evil that was in view in Joseph's response. Because Evil is brought up a couple times there. The brothers knew that they had committed some evil acts, and Joseph acknowledges it. So and the story of Joseph is a pretty long story. It starts back in Genesis 37, and we see the first thing is the sin of favoritism by Jacob in Genesis 37.3, that Jacob loved Joseph more than he did any of, of his other children. And then we see the hatred of his brothers in Genesis 37.4 where they, they couldn't even speak peaceably with him. They hated him so much for it. So we see this beginning of this problem. And then we see in Genesis 37.11 the jealousy about the dreams God had given Joseph. So this little brother that dad loves more than anybody else all of a sudden standing up and telling us about these couple dreams where he's going to end up being in charge of everybody. And uh, you can see how that continued that sinful desire within the brothers, although Joseph was telling the truth. Then we see the desire to murder Joseph in 37, 18 through 20 by his brothers. You think that might cause a little bit of trauma? Your own brothers wants to, want to kill you? And then we see that they abuse him, rip off his cloak, and they throw him into the pit in 37, 23 through 24. So... Now we're getting real. <laughs> and then they sell him into slavery and took him where he was taken to Egypt in Genesis 37, 27 through 28. Now this, uh, you see that Joseph may have struggled with a little bit of trauma here. You're being taken to a land that you've never even been to by people that you don't know at the hands of your own family. Then, when he gets there, oh, before that, they, the brothers lied to their father about Joseph's death in Genesis 37, 31 through 37. And so now your father's not even going to come looking for you. And I bring this up because you might think, well, at this time, Joseph didn't know that. Well, remember, he had some time with his father before his father's death here in Genesis 50. I'm sure it came up. I imagine Joseph probably asked, like, you know, did you come, try to come find me? And he says, I thought you were dead. Your brothers showed me your cloak with blood all over it. I thought animals got you. And so you can imagine why the brothers are like, uh, we should probably <laughs> try to fix this. <laughs> he's going to be upset. But he's all alone in Egypt. No one's coming for him. And then we see that he's sold to an Egyptian officer, a pharaoh, 
Potiphar in Genesis 37, 36. And then Potiphar's wife attempts sexual abuse on him in, in Genesis 39, 7 through 12. And then he had defamation of his character where she lies and said it was him, something that he was trying not to sin against the Lord, but it, either way he gets thrown into prison for it and not believed. Although many scholars believe that Potiphar might have, might have thought maybe his wife was making up some stories because usually this would be immediate death for something like that, but instead he gets thrown into prison. So there was a little bit of grace shown by Potiphar here. Maybe he didn't fully believe his wife, but either way, Joseph's character is ran through the mud. Then he's put in prison for a crime he did not commit. And then after Cupbearer and the baker come and share the dreams, Cupbearer promises to remember him, and then he's forgotten for two years. And so you can imagine what Joseph went through, which brings into view this statement that he makes to his brothers. Joseph had to have a deeper theological understanding. Theology just means our understanding, our study of God, what we believe about God. And Joseph's theological understanding that gave him hope was that he trusted in the character of God, despite his circumstances. There's no way you can make the, the proclamation to your brothers and forgive your brothers if you did not trust in the character of God over the circumstances you went through. But Joseph must have wrestled with his understanding of God through this time, especially in light of the evil that he had faced. And a few of the things that he had to wrestle with that I wanted to find for us here is specifically God's character in terms of his sovereignty, his providence, his omnipotence, his goodness, his holiness. He had to be struggling with those facts of God. Let me define these terms for us so I make sure we're all on the same page when I say these words. Omnipotent means God is all-powerful. God's sovereignty means God's power and authority over all other powers and authorities. There's a couple categories within sovereignty that we need to understand. There's the first cause of his sovereignty where God directly moves. He directly causes things to happen. He speaks creation into existence. He, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. He parts the Red Sea. He, so on and so forth. And then there's the second cause of his sovereignty where God is still in control, but he doesn't cause evil to happen. It says God holds the evil agents responsible for their choices and uses their choices to bring about his sovereign and perfect plan. So although he doesn't create evil, he allows it and he uses it for the good of those who love him and he uses it for his sovereign will and purposes. He is still in control. He is sovereign. It's important for us to understand that. Joseph understood that. And we'll get into the details of that in a moment. God's providence. Providence speaks to God's power to divinely bring about his will. He's providentially moving in your life every single day. Nothing happens without his understanding, without his movement. And there's God's holiness. This speaks of his transcendence primarily, his separation, his perfect will, holy and set apart, and also speaks to his purity and his righteousness. And then God's goodness. He is perfectly good and is not capable of evil. It's important for us to understand these terms because I want to speak to the problem of evil, which is what all of us face when we're faced with suffering at the hands of another or suffering in a way that 
It doesn't seem to make sense, and we can't seem to understand why it would happen. And we often ask this question. How can there be any evil in the world if God exists? Has anyone ever asked that question? How can God exist in the face of this evil that I'm, that I'm experiencing right now? It doesn't seem to make any sense. It doesn't seem to go together. John Frame, in his book, The Doctrine of God, lays it out really well for us. He speaks of that question, the common question that we all face, and he puts it a little bit more formally. He says, how can there be any evil in the world if God exists? Or to put it more formally, if God is omnipotent, he is able to prevent evil. So that's one thing that we're saying. If God is omnipotent, if he's all-powerful, then he is able to prevent evil. And if God is good, he wants to prevent evil. But evil exists. Conclusion that we make. Either God is not omnipotent or he is not good. Those are the conclusions we often come to when we're faced with suffering at the level of trauma. When we face evil at the hands of another. We make those conclusions. Either God is not all-powerful, because <clears throat> if he was, he wouldn't let this happen. Or he's not good, because how could he allow evil to exist? But I want to point out a few, a few dangerous assumptions about that. In my studies, looking through Scripture, I came up with four that I want to commend to you today. Four assumptions that we would have to make in order to make that conclusion, which is a wrong conclusion, that either God is not omnipotent or he's not good. The first conclusion that we would make would be we must assume that sinful, finite humans are morally good in their thinking. In order to make that claim, we have to assume that we, sinful, finite, imperfect humans, are morally good enough in our thinking to conclude that God is not good. So if we are to judge the character of God based on the existence of evil, we put ourselves in the place of a moral judge. That's pride. We cannot do that. I know it's tempting to do that, but we cannot do that. Our knowledge is limited. Our minds are darkened by sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And even in our salvation, as new creations, we still battle this flesh that is sinful. The only wisdom that we can find, the only goodness that we find is in the word of God. Not in our own thinking, in our own understanding. We have to be careful about that. Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You are not good. I am not good. He is good. Period. So we can't make these conclusions based upon our own understanding. And so that's one assumption that is fatal and we have to be careful about if we start making the conclusion that God's not powerful or he's not good. The second assumption that we have to be careful about is to make that conclusion, we must deny the scripture, that scripture is God's word. 
In order to make the conclusion that God's not all-powerful or he's not good would be to deny God's word because God's word says these things about God. So we have to cut out a ton of scripture, which means that scripture is not your authority. But the Bible reminds us, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what the scriptures tell us. That's what we believe. It's what we hold true if we're if we are saved in Christ, if we believe in Christ. So in order to make those conclusions, we have to be careful because it means we're denying Scripture. Romans 8, 28 through 29, we have to deny that Scripture says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's the same thing Joseph is saying. That he knows that God is working all things together for good. You have to deny that if you make that claim that he is either not all-powerful or not good. James 1, 13-14, we have to deny where he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, he's being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. If we claim that he's not good, we have to deny what James just said because we're claiming that God brought about evil. And the Bible's clear that he doesn't. He doesn't stand directly behind it, although he does control it. It's not outside of his control. The third assumption that we have to make in order to assume that he's not all-powerful or not good is we must assume that God owes us an explanation for his allowance of evil. We have to make the assumption that God owes us an explanation because evil exists. We need to understand why. You need to tell me why. Why'd you allow that, God? And God doesn't. He doesn't tell us that explicitly in Scripture why he allows it to still exist, and he doesn't owe us an explanation. Look at Job 40, verses 3 through 14. God allows Satan to ravage Job's life to the point all the way up into death. Why does God allow that? Because of his wisdom and what he was bringing about. And there is a point to the story of Job. We won't get into it right now. But at the end of Job here, he has this discourse with God after he's been through the suffering and has been asking a lot of questions and wondering why God would allow these things. And where we pick up right here, God has already spoken first to Job to the point of where Job is repenting now. He says, in verse 3 of chapter 40, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, and I will proceed no further. Otherwise, words, all right, God, I, I quit complaining. I'm not saying anything. And here's what the Lord says to Joseph, or to Job in this section. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that, that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. 
like, oh, gird your loins. That's a tough statement. But what he's teaching Job here is, listen, you don't have the wisdom that I have. You don't see the picture that I see. And that your hope should be in me and me alone, not in this life. Romans 9, 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is what God says. God is God. We are not. And we have no right in forcing or thinking we deserve some sort of explanation for God's allowance of evil. It still is true that he allows it and he's in control of it. And the last conclusion that's dangerous that we have to address is that when we make that claim that he's not all-powerful or not good, we are also concluding that hope can be found apart from him. If I'm going to deny that God is who he says he is, then where should I find hope? And we seek it within ourselves. But God is the source of all good, and he's the only place to find hope. Isaiah 40, 30-32, Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Galatians 6.8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is the only hope that we have. He's the only source of hope. So Joseph understood God's sovereignty and providential will. When he makes that statement at the end, he understood that. It was in view. When he says to his brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He understands that I'm exactly where God wanted me and has me, and everything that's happened to me has been because God has orchestrated it. Joseph understood that his suffering was orchestrated by God to bring about his gracious plan of salvation for his people. It sometimes is thought that God knows the future but can't control it. A lot of times when we're faced with the problem of evil, we try to, we try to let God off the hook, if you will. Well, he has foreknowledge, but he doesn't really know. He has all these ways that it could go, and he kind of knows. Or another thought is that he upholds the world but does not intervene in it. He just gives general direction and not really concerned with the details of the day-to-day. The Bible completely disagrees with those assumptions and reminds us over and over that he is completely in control of it all and has purpose in it all. Look what God does throughout Joseph's life. See, God showed himself to be intimately involved in the life of Joseph. I showed you the evil that was in view, but now let's look at how God's hand was at every point of Joseph's journey. God, number one, Genesis 37, one through 11, God gave Joseph his dreams that sparked the events. Those dreams weren't from Joseph. They were from God. Even his ability to interpret those dreams came in handy later. That God, it was God who gave him the ability to do so. God was with Joseph in Potiphar's house and made him prosper. When he was sold into slavery, the reason why he was in charge of, all, of it all was because of God's hand on his life. 
God's favor on Joseph guarded him a lighter sentence for the false accusation in Genesis 39:20. We talked about that earlier. Most people would be killed immediately if, if a wife of a Roman soldier said that you'd try to put your hands on her or try to take advantage of her. But instead, he was put in jail, which the favor that he had with Potiphar, we see, was used here to put him exactly where he needed to be. God was with Joseph in prison where he found favor and gained influence in Genesis 39, 21 through 23. He was running the whole jail. God placed high government officials in jail and gave them dreams for Joseph to interpret in Genesis 40, verse 8. And then God gave Pharaoh a dream that only Joseph could interpret in Genesis 41, 1 through 36. And then God gave Joseph wisdom that pleased Pharaoh and God put Joseph second in command over all of Egypt in Genesis 41, 37 through 57. And then in Genesis 42 through 50, Joseph's family came and bowed to him, fulfilling the prophetic dreams that he had given Joseph as a child and fulfilling the covenant that he had given to Abraham that he would preserve a, a people, Israel, and that they would become greater than the stars. They would become more numerous than the stars. And in Egypt, if you read on, they flourish and they grow in number. This was all God bringing about his sovereign will and plan through Joseph's life, and Joseph understood it. God's sovereignty is where we find our answer for the problem of evil that provides the hope we long for in, suffer, in the suffering we experience. See, asking the question, how can God be sovereign if evil exists, is the wrong question. The reality is we don't get the specific answers to why God allows evil to exist, but we can trust him to, to be good nevertheless because he is good, and God is a God of all wisdom. The right question is what is God's answer for evil and how do we find the hope that we're desperate to find? That's the question. When we're faced with traumatic events in our lives or suffering, the question is not to question God but to seek the Lord and how to find hope in it in a place that only hope can be found through God himself. God's answer to the problem of evil is in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the answer. That's where we find the hope. In Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise to defeat the curse of sin and death, the very covenant that God protected through his sovereign will in Joseph's life. And God's full character is revealed through the gospel. In Exodus 34.6-7, the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims his character before him, and we have that recorded for our, for our own good. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is God's character. It's always been God's character. Because God is holy and just, evil must be destroyed and sin must be punished. And because God is also merciful and gracious and slow to anger and loving and forgiving, that's also who he is, and therefore we see God's full character displayed on the cross, where we see all of his character meet, where his justice, his righteousness, his holiness, his wrath was satisfied on the cross, on his son Jesus. And at the same time, his grace, his mercy, his love is displayed that Christ took the penalty for your sin 
so that you wouldn't have to. For anyone who would believe in the name of the Son of Jesus, who would trust him as Lord, would be saved. God's full character is displayed on the cross. I want you to see this in Isaiah 53. Turn there in your Bibles. It won't, pick up, it won't show up on the screen for you. <clears throat> but this is one of the prophecies of the Messiah that I think really displays God's full character. All right, Isaiah 53. I gotta keep moving. Start in verse one. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and he esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of many people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The answer to evil is that God laid the wrath that sin deserves onto his son so that salvation can be given to those who trust in Christ as Lord. That's the answer. That's the hope. And so as we conclude here today, we got about 10 more minutes, so bear with me. We're gonna look at three imperatives of the gospel and four implications that I hope you get as we finish today. Because right here is where the meat of it is. Right here is where the hope is for you. It's within the cross. And the first imperative that we need to see is that Christ saves us from the punishment and guilt of our own sin. This is incredibly important for us to see because it's easy within our suffering or in, in trauma to, to wanna excuse our own sin because of the sin that we've faced. And there is... That's not true. We cannot excuse our own sin. The suffering of Christ removes the penalty of sin, the effects that sin has on our lives. It is through suffering that salvation comes and gives us the forgiveness that we don't deserve and makes us new. 
We cannot forget that our need for salvation is there and our sin needs to be forgiven. When we're faced with trauma, when we suffer at the hands of others, it is tempting to view ourselves as amoral victims and excuse the progression of our life from there. To expect others to excuse our sinful behaviors and choices because you just don't understand what I've been through. You cannot do that. That is not hopeful and that is not right. Although we are experiencing the hurt of sin of others and can be victims to their sin, we are not without the need for the forgiveness of our own sin. We are not without the need to take responsibility for our own sin. Bad things do not happen to good people. No one is good. All sin must be punished, and it includes our own. We cannot forget that. Vindication for the sin that we face will come to pass. It is promised to us in Romans 12, 17 through 21, where, where Paul tells us that we don't seek vengeance of our, of our own, that vindication is the Lord's. He will vindicate himself. He will pour out his wrath upon sin. You, it is not for you to seek justice of your own. Colossians 2, 11 through 15 reminds us, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He cancels the record of our debt. And your debt needs to be dealt with the same as the one who has sinned against you or the suffering that you faced. So the first one is Christ saves us from the punishment and guilt of our own sin that has to be dealt with. The second imperative is Christ removes the shame of the sin that has happened to us. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says, For all who, were, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. When we experience sin at the hands of another, that traumatic experience can shape our identity and often does. Shapes how we view God and how we view ourselves. And we begin to carry it as part of who we are and thereby identifying ourselves with the shame of that sin. But one of the beautiful pictures of the gospel is that you're given a brand new identity. And we receive that new identity in Christ. That one is not defined by the trauma that you experience or the suffering that you've experienced, but you're defined as a child of God based upon the work of Christ. And the last imperative before we get to the implications is God's sovereign plan is shown to us through the cross. It's tough to understand why he would allow these things to happen. But evil has to be reconciled. Healing will never happen without turning and reconciling the experience of our sin, ours and the sin of suffering. 
through the work of Christ, which displays to us the character of God. Joseph understood this. Joseph understood God's bigger plan to bring about salvation, and it was realized through Jesus. Joseph's realization that God's glory and his eternal plan was more important than the suffering that he faced allowed him to forgive his brothers. Joseph understood the reality of his own sin and the need for a savior, that hope was found in God alone. And understanding the sovereign will and sovereign plan of God and the wisdom of the Lord is what allowed him to forgive his brothers. Understanding that they did do evil things against him, but God used that for good, that God had never forgotten him through the process. So I wanna end now with four implications of the gospel, and I hope that you will take these to heart. For those of us who are in Christ, number one, we experience compassion. We experience compassion. Christ's suffering shows God's compassion to be real and not theoretical. First Peter 2, 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It is through his wounds that he heals our wounds. That in Christ, God draws near to us. God understands. So much to the point that he himself has went through every temptation and every form of trauma that you could think of. Just look at the life of Christ. Rejected, beaten, broken, killed for no reason. All the things. And we experience compassion at a very deep and real level. The second implication of the gospel for those who are in Christ is comfort. Comfort. Remember back in Isaiah 53, it says he will bear our iniquities in verse 11. Second Corinthians 1, three through five says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which he, we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We receive comfort through the cross, comfort that we desperately need in the face of suffering and trauma. The third implication is hope. Gosh, we need hope when we're faced with these things. Hope. Isaiah 53 says he makes intercession for the transgressors in verse 12. Romans 5, 1 through 5 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. That word for hope in the Greek is elpis, which means an expectation of what is sure. A hope in who God is, a hope in the plan that he's bringing about, the hope in eternal life, that this life is not where it ends. The gospel is hope because the shame and brokenness that you feel is dealt with by God, and it allows for forgiveness. Which brings us to our last and maybe most important implication of the gospel, which is courage. When we are facing trauma, when we are facing tr suffering, we need courage more than anything else. 
2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10 says this. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by the life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The basis of our courage is upon the character of God and who he is. That's the basis for this courage. It's in the eternal hope. Look what they say. Paul says, we know if this tent is destroyed, we have a home, a building not made by human hands, eternal in the heavens. And so it's important for us to understand that in Christ, we receive courage, courage to face the trauma that we have, have to face. We receive courage to forgive the offense and the offender. We are called to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And there is freedom in forgiveness but it takes courage to forgive those who have offended us. It takes hope. It takes belief. It takes care more about God's glory than your own good. And God gives us that courage. It takes courage to trust in the eternal hope that leads to salvation. It takes laying down your life and trusting that he is good and trusting him as Lord. The only way any of this will be true for you is if you have an eternal perspective. Your hope cannot be in the circumstances of this life. It cannot be in the hope of vindication or justification for the things you've been through. And it cannot be that you are defined by the trauma that you've experienced. Hope comes through Christ alone. And God gives us a promise for those who are his children. I want to end with this as we close. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My question for you as we close is where are you seeking help with the sorrow you feel over the trauma you faced or over the suffering that you have faced? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask for your mercy in this time because this is all easy to see in, in knowledge, but hard to trust and understand and see your goodness even through sin and trial. God, help us 
to trust you. Help us to draw near to you. Help us to find our hope in your character. I pray for healing to begin for those who need you, and I pray for those who are without a relationship with you that today would be the beginning of them surrendering to Christ as Lord and putting their faith in you for the first time and be saved. God, I pray your blessing over this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.